0: of the mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host, broadcasting to you live once again from Radio City Docklands. And as we know, Radio City's Docklands is on the land of the Wurundjeri people from the Kulin Nations, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, last week I asked who else was over <laughs> Unprecedented. Well, it turns out that uh, Brett Sutton and Daniel Andrews weren't. That's who. I remember when the uh, the heart lockdown was was um, uh, announced, um, I was looking out over the, the streets of uh, Docklands, Radio City, and the streets were absolutely deserted. And I thought, well, that's a really good sign that uh, people are doing the right thing. And then I remembered that I was in Docklands and it's like this all the time. But uh, that's the way things go. Um, so here we are in the hardest uh, lockdown yet. The rolling average is still rising, but not as fast. COVID its still refusing to wear masks because freedom. Uh, a quarter of the people with COVID are not at home when checked on by authorities and the rest of us are all here doing the right thing. Have to say, it was a relief yesterday when we discovered broadcasting was deemed an essential service, meaning that your broadcaster in times of disaster, Triple R, will be with you right through the next six weeks. So don't touch that dial and try and remember us when it comes to Radiothon, which is coming up in a few short weeks' time. Now, before I tell you what is on the show tonight, I thought I would just take some time out to acknowledge what we're actually all going through, because um, if there's going to be a show that does that, then it's going to be one like The Mission. So, of course, my heart goes out to anyone affected by the virus itself, those that have it, or have had it, or have lost a loved one as a result of the bloody thing. I guess the sad truth is that by the time this thing is over, the degree of separation from those of us who have been dramatically impacted in a health sense by COVID will be not as great as it is now. And in terms of the economic fallout that has seen people lose their jobs and their ability to socially interact with others, there are zero degrees of separation. We, we all know someone that has lost a job or lost income or seen their business freeze or go under. There might be you listening now. And if that's um, the case, then uh, I'm thinking of you and many others are thinking of you as well. So, I think during these dire times, it's really important to acknowledge the pain. But more importantly, try to also at the same time not regulate the feelings of others. I mean, on social media recently, um, if you see people feeling down, if you see people having a laugh, if you see people having a whinge, don't try and regulate their feelings based on the way you feel. I think there's a lot of that going on at the moment, and we need, to, um, at this point in time, less apathy and more empathy. We're all struggling in varying degrees, and our moods are allowed to ebb and flow throughout the day. It's part of the human experience, and we should not try and curtail it during times like these. But one thing that we do need to curtail and acknowledge is that this thing doesn't hit everyone equally. Look at the suburbs and postcodes that remain hotspots and look at the suburbs that have the fewest number of cases. And once you've done that, you'll realise it's the working class and those with the least job security that are copping the brunt of this thing called COVID-19, which in turn, of course, affects the most vulnerable, the elderly and my community, the Aboriginal community. We are seeing growing numbers of COVID within the community across Victoria, the Aboriginal community. I don't have the latest figures, but as of last week, it was still 45 people who had COVID with, um, uh, you know, 20-odd of those still active. So I just plead to you, and this is the the mission audience, I plead to you to do the right thing, which I know that you are. So um, that's the, that's um, really all I wanted to say um, about that. But we do need to keep asking ourselves as to why this is the case, why there is that inequity. And we need to start thinking about what soci- sort of society we want as we stumble our way out of this thing. And that's what this show aims to do. I, and I, I thank you for listening each week. We try and shine a light on these issues. So on to tonight's show, and in a moment I'll be joined by Catherine Little, one of the senior members of the Coalition of Peaks, that last week negotiated the refresh of the Closing the Clap agenda, sending a range of new targets across a range of new areas. So we'll yarn about that shortly. And in the second half of the show, we'll chat with uh, Daniel McCauley. He co-authored a piece in The Conversation way back in April that highlighted the challenges facing urban Aboriginal communities when it comes to the virus. So we'll talk to him about the complexities around that. So that's the show for uh, this evening the best way to connect with me is via my Twitter handle at Mr. DT James, M R D T James. So once again, I plead with you to stay safe, stay strong, and stay listening. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Now you may have seen last week that the new national agreement on closing the gap uh, has been released. It actually received really broad coverage throughout the mainstream media, which was pleasing to see. The agreement is the culmination of months of negotiation between Aboriginal peak organisations and governments at all levels. Four priority areas uh, and 16 socio-economic targets commit federal, state and territory governments to work in partnership with Aboriginal organisations to design and deliver on priority areas such as housing, early childhood and justice reform. One of the senior members of the Coalition of Peaks that negotiated the agreement is Catherine Little. Catherine is the CEO of First Nations Media Australia. She is an Aranda Laricha woman from Central Australia's regions. She's a journalist, and Catherine's worked across all levels of news and current affairs production, and presented news programs for Impaia, NITV, and the ABC. And she's no stranger to Triple R, and she's no stranger to this show. And she's on the line with us now. Catherine, welcome back to the Mission.
1: Hello, and thank you for having me back.
0: No, thank you very much for your precious time. Um, I guess I'll start at the top with this, and it was really good to see coverage in mainstream media, in, in nightly bulletins, um, especially in the time of uh, a pandemic. But why is the agreement such a big deal?
1: It's a big deal because... The the fact is that Australia has absolutely unspeakable gaps in the life outcomes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, and in all areas of aspects of life. You know, you know, we're, we're talking about things like mortality, chronic disease, disability rates, housing security, education, employment, and wealth. You know, this is things that other people take for granted. We're just not there. We're just not on parity. So um, we needed something that looked at what those gaps were. Uh, and being very clear that the original closing the gap targets were were not um, developed in consultation with Aboriginal people, and potentially not even the areas we would have looked at. So something pretty major needed to happen before um, before any refresh of this agreement was put out again.
0: We, we've heard um, a lot about the, the, the coalition of peaks. Just um, refresh our memories as to to what the coalition of peaks actually constitutes.
1: Yep, so there's about 50 of us. Um, The Coalition of Peaks uh, represent um, uh, the community-controlled Aboriginal sectors. So that's health, uh, um, you know, legal services, land councils, media services. Um, Each of those services has a membership underneath it. Um, so for example, you know we've got about two hundred members, um, and in that membership there's around forty different radio stations, plus a couple of television stations, you know a couple of digital um, service providers. but you know so we' while we are we are considered a senior peak because we're truly a national body, um yeah. there are other organisations say like the New South Wales, land council peak body it's got 23,000 members so the peaks um while they're only you know while they're, they're single entities in the room at any one time they represent an extraordinary diversity of community controlled organizations that are on the front line every day of dealing with the issues related to the gaps in our life outcomes
0: and we've seen that particularly with the aboriginal community controlled health sector in uh, recent months with the amazing amount of preparedness that they've had in terms of dealing with with COVID. And we're seeing that you know, week in, week out down here in, in in Victoria as well. So, you know, institutions, organisations like uh, nacho and, and its equivalent vacho here in Victoria that represent what is known as community-controlled health organisations. And I note that there has been a little bit of criticism around um I guess the, the 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 agreement, but I, I think I think in mm-hmm. terms of representation. But I think it's really important to remember that these organisations are community owned and community run. Am I correct?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, every single one of them has to be community owned and has to have an Aboriginal board that governs their activities. So, uh, and they're place based. You know, they are the expert on what's happening on the ground in their home environments. So there's incredible diversity there. Um, and and you know, again, what it's advocating for is that the community controlled sector has uh, a better purchase in being able to work with our communities as experts, you know, experts in our own lived experience. But it it also recognises really fundamental things like, you know what, you can't always use an Aboriginal community-controlled service. Sometimes you might choose not to use that service. um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes you've got no choice. So, you know, if you've got to use a hospital or a school, well, they're not necessarily Aboriginal community-controlled, and that's where the priority reform areas come in because that's the piece of work that says, you know what, We're going to prioritise language and culture. We're going to work with the government at removing significant systemic barriers like institutionalised racism, and the government's going to be, you know, working with us and addressing it and and, uh, developing those targets that actually prove whether or not these things are working.
0: Because that's right. The, The agreement doesn't only establish new targets. It actually aims to change the way, fundamentally, the way governments work with Aboriginal organisations. Do you want to expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the first one, and it, it, it's huge, um, and that is, and this came about as, as not only the what was, uh, I guess, information received from the PEEPS membership bodies but also from general broader consultations and everyone identified it and that is that the governments need to work in partnership with us. We need to be in the room and we need to have our hands on the steering wheels so When we come to talking about the architecture for our futures, well, you know, we are the best, we are the best place to be able to work out what the infrastructure needs to be looking like. Um, the second one, of course, is around what I've just talked about and that is Getting uh, understanding that um, you know we need to look at what systemic racism looks like, what institutionalised racism looks like, um, and there are a couple of others underneath it, but they're the they're the two really big ones. Um, and they basically that's for us. That's the for us. I guess is the coalition of peaks. Targets are targets, and we've had them for ten years, right? So we've had them for a very long time, and as we know, there's been very, very little growth. So what we understand as targets, we know that they're just something that governments measure by. Um, we needed absolutely, we, we needed systemic reform, um, and under that, of course, we also need the government to come up with uh, with the goods around implementation and also the funding package that is required to drive implementation.
0: So is there is there any money attached as we speak? tonight, or is that something that still needs to be uh, negotiated as we as we start delivering this thing?
1: It still is under negotiation, um, and certainly it's something that's recognised across the board. Um, and there's a couple of other things that's still in negotiation as well. So, for example, um, it's the first time ever that the uh, First Nations media has been recognised in the Closing the Gap strategy, mm. so that, that's massive for us, but there's also targets around um uh family violence and whatnot that need to be um, addressed as a matter of priority as well so there are still things in negotiation and i think that's the beauty of this document is we've negotiated so it's a living breathing document it doesn't stop right here it needs to be adjustable and it needs to be flexible it needs to actually um respond to what the needs are as the needs arise.
0: so yeah well i've you know obviously i've got you on the line catherine as the CEO of First Nations Media, what does this mean for, for your organisation and what you can contribute to this agreement?
1: Oh, look, it, it's um, it's, uh, it's precedent-setting, actually, because never before have we had a policy leader in government that we can actually use to drive change. Um, so that, for us, is absolutely significant. Um, our policy leader will probably revolve – not probably appeal – it will revolve around people being able to get information um in in a language that they understand um from voices that they trust um and the information that is relevant to them and i think covid has been an incredible example of that and that means that not only can you listen to it on your radio um you should be able to get it on your phone you should be able to get it on your television then you should be able to get it on the computer so we need to look really comprehensively at what that means for our sector and certainly we'll have to do some pretty serious negotiating with all the different jurisdictions over how they may commit to this. Um, But there is also a caveat in the document that says, you know, that the First Nations media sector should play a fundamental role in, um, I guess, distributing the messages associated with the Closing the Gap reforms. Because as it is, we know that there are significant um, communication packages that are often distributed out. And sometimes they go to Aboriginal um, businesses, and that's fantastic. Uh, We support that 100%. But there are also on the ground um, these incredible, uh, you know, place-based, regional broadcasters urban broadcasters remote broadcasters able to make that content as well and we want to make sure that everyone is able to be engaged in that it promotes jobs it promotes well-being but more importantly it creates messages that actually
0: work one of the um one of the things that um we've been reflecting on here in in melbourne i guess is is the way that we communicate with you know the 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 multitude of communities in, in this city and um you know there's been some criticism that some of those messages haven't been getting through to some of the um, uh, uh, more diverse and 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 new communities, first uh, new Australian communities and first mm-hmm. Australian communities. But one thing that I think has been recognised is that uh, the Aboriginal community is very good at um, tailoring health messages f- at at the local level for um for, mm-hmm. for its community and for its service um, providers as well. Um, and, of course, you know, as we go forward in this, First Nations media is going to play a, a significant role in assisting with that.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, oh absolutely and and that's that's the whole point of working with the community control sector it is acknowledging that on the ground there are people that deal with this every day and they're experts they're absolute experts in it. so this it, it gives again all those organizations the policy leader to have those conversations and I'd imagine right across the country now each of those peaks Um, while we work collectively as the coalition, we have the autonomy to work independently um, for what is needed to drive change in our individual sectors. And, um, you know, I think, I don't know, I look at, you know, the messaging that happened during COVID and I think, look, it's fantastic, you know, that um, the VACHOs and the health services all had access to additional funding to be able to do that. But I know that our sector had to really, really fight to, um, I guess, find the funding that would enable us to effectively message, because that's where people go to. We are the trusted voice, and, and we know that as Indigenous people, we go to where those trusted voices are, and we go mm-hmm. to where our leaders are. And I think that's um, a massive failure in what you see with media. Need to look for our leaders, they often go for where the noisy voices are. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, most Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people know that the noisiest person in the room isn't necessarily the leader. So um, I think that, again, that's an example of of those nuances. And I'd imagine even for um, the broader multicultural communities in, in Melbourne, you know, was media going to their actual leaders or were they hearing people that made good content?
0: It's a very poignant question, and um, I think the the answer to that would differ from community to um, community, but you're so right about the, the noisiest office often being the most heard, but not necessarily being the leader. So, um, I, two more questions before I let you go, Catherine. Um, there's been a little bit of criticism around, because that there are so many different agencies involved in, in the agreement, that mm-hmm. there might be a lack of accountability like in terms of where where does the buck stop in terms of delivering this thing who who is responsible for actually reporting back to uh, you know for one of a better term the australian people and taxpayers as to the success and outcomes of this agreement you know would that be would that still be the prime minister or is that was that dispersed even further
1: Look, I think um, we have we have a greater agency in this than we've ever had before. But certainly, you know, the the, the agreement itself, we are not the most powerful partner in the room. The governments are, yeah. um, and things like the targets, um, you know, they they are they they represent the absolute limits that we were able to push governments to um, commit to. Um, so, so we sort of, you know, it, it, it is a. This is one of those, I guess, tricky parts of a negotiation, understanding the bits that we're going to win and the bits that we're not going to win. Um so it is, um, you know, it is still primarily the responsibility of the government. You know, this is, that's where the funding comes from. That's where the funding is distributed for. But what we're hoping is that by negotiating with us, that will be used more effectively and will get better impact because it's being used at the grassroots level by, and and, and subsequently filling gaps that um, major institutions may not see.
0: And again, that's what the the agreement itself uh, uh, details um, in terms of the four um, priority reform areas, and that's shared decision making, building the community-controlled sector, improving mainstream institutions to deliver services to Aboriginal people, and ensuring that there is Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander-led data. Um, so, last question: um, What's next in terms of this agreement? Well, what are, what are the next steps?
1: Implementation, that's the yeah. big one. So, um, that's for us the next big meeting is to talk about how we go forward. So, while um, this agreement uh, differs significantly from the original Closing the Gap documents in that it does have an implementation plan attached to it, but even that needs a little bit of work while we negotiate how to go forward. With that implementation plan, and of course, you've mentioned funding, that's one of the things we'll be talking about. And I guess, as I've said, there are two targets still to be developed. One of those relates directly to the First Nations media sector. So, obviously, that one for us um, is, is very high on our agenda.
0: Well, Catherine, thank you so much for your time. Listeners, if you want to get a hold of the agreement itself, um, have a look at it in detail. I think probably the best place to go is uh, nacho.org.au. That's the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. They have um, uh, been leading the, the, the agreement through through their CEO, Pat Turner. Who's done a tremendous job? Um, So, yeah, natcho.org.au. But thank you very much for your time, Catherine, and uh, keep up the good fight. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks for having us on. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now, if you were to believe the mainstream media or if you've received the bog-standard education that most Australians seem to have had, you would believe that the majority of Aboriginal people live in rural and or remote settings. And if you believe this is the case, then and you're sitting in a chair at the moment, then prepare to fall out of that chair when I tell you that uh, 79% of us actually live in urban communities. And while a great job has been done of annexing... annexing remote communities from the threat of COVID, it presents, in many ways, a greater challenge to protect the majority of us in cities like Melbourne. Way back in April, which seems like a lifetime ago, uh, The Conversation published an article entitled, Urban Aboriginal People Face Unique Challenges in the Fight Against Coronavirus. And with a growing number of cases within the Aboriginal community here in Victoria, it would seem that the article is more pertinent now than ever Um, given the challenges that we are facing in this wonderful city of ours at the moment. One of the co-authors of the piece was Daniel McCarley, Associate Professor. Daniel is a Director of the Centre of Research Excellence for Improving Health Services for Aboriginal children at the University of Western Australia. Beginning as a registered nurse working in Aboriginal community controlled health services, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health has always been a focus for Dan, and he has pursued that with the epidemiology and built a career in health research policy and practice. And he's on the line with us now. Daniel, welcome to the mission. Thank you. Now, for the listeners out there, uh, Dan is based in um, Perth, which is a very, very long way from where we are now in so many ways. It is. <laughs> Dan, thanks for writing the article. Um, uh, it's something that's resonating with us very strongly at the moment. What are some of the main challenges when it comes to trying to prevent COVID from affecting urban Aboriginal communities?
2: Um, I think, oh, let me just correct you, correct you, sorry. I'm actually working at uh, Edith Cowan University. Oh, right, moment, OK. I've uh, no jobs since then, um, but that's OK. <laughs> so, um, so many changes. I think oh, again, it's a moving piece. That's what <laughs> life is. Um, I think um, from the, from the perspective of this article when it was written, and and you're very true that the numbers now um, are vastly different from when we um, wrote this only a, a few months ago. Um, But we really wanted to highlight, A, that, um, you know, uh, most Indigenous people actually do live in um, urban areas and we know that there are quite different, unique health challenges that exist in the urban areas. And one of the... um, Uh, sort of the issues that do resonate across uh, all Aboriginal um, and and Torres Strait Islander people across the country, urban, rural, remote, other, other, the overcrowding and the large households. But something that um, is unique in urban areas, as we know, is um, the increasing homelessness that Mm. um, exists, Um, uh, poor health literacy, um, uh, you know, uh, poverty, that comes along with that, that the homelessness, the inability to, you know, to follow proper um, infection control guidelines when it comes to, you know, trying to prevent catching, um, you know, this uh, COVID-19 coronavirus, let alone, you know, common cold or, or influenza, such as, you know, trying to um, have access to running water and to wash your hands. And and if you can afford it now, which is, which, you know, the price of, um, you know, uh, uh, hand gel, disinfectant, hand gel, hand mm-hmm. sanitizers, sort of skyrocketing. Um So I think homelessness is really is really important. Um, access to health is is really um, interesting in that I don't think we should be measuring access to health in at all times in distance to healthcare because we know that you know if you're in a, an indigenous person who's homeless in in the metropolitan in a metropolitan area, sometimes access to health is incredibly difficult.
0: Yeah, it, it is. One just to harp back to the to the the households point you just made. One of the things that you mentioned in the article is that um, households are more likely to be intergenerational. Do you? Do you yes. What What do you mean exactly by that?
2: So that means so that means you you will have you know uh, a parent living with um, their their parents, and so there's children, parents, grandparents and often um, extended families such as aunties and uncles and great-aunties and uncles, other nans and pops and uncles and aunts. So often, you know, it's really um, difficult to social distance when you're in an overcrowded household. It's also interesting um, when you have, uh, you know, older uh, people, you know, um, grandparents living with young children who we know... um, we know more increasingly that, um, you know, children aren't affected as much by COVID, but they are um, potentially um, what's being termed overseas as super spreaders and spreaders. So mm. it's really difficult to try and, you know, keep children and grandparents apart. It's, you know, it's difficult and we can see that happening now in, in Victoria and in, other areas, in Melbourne and where other areas where people have to social distance. It's really hard to break that, that really strong family um, bond and connection.
0: Yeah, that, that's, you mean, that's a very um, excellent point you make, Dan, in that, you know, we have uh, in Victoria, we have a, um, a, a young population. Uh, the majority of people in the mainstream community that have actually picked up COVID are between the ages of uh, 15 and 44, and it's the same in the Aboriginal community too. And so when you have those generations of families living in, in under the one roof or being in regular contact with each other, it, it really does create a bit of a recipe for, for, for disaster.
2: Yeah, it, it increases the risk dramatically.
0: The other point, another point that you raise in the article too is that um, there, there is in some communities a, um, a level of uh, poor health literacy um, do you want to go into that yes. a little bit and, and, and describe what you mean?
2: So, um, that is uh, sort of the inability for people to understand health messaging that is being pre- pre- um, presented to them. Um, so, it's, if it's not presented in a way that you can actually understand what you're meant to be doing, an example is that, you know, I think uh, Aboriginal Community Control has done an amazing job working with government to... They really to, have, haven't they? Um, absolutely, to prevent the spread of infection. But we do know, um, um, I've chatted to some people in in remote areas where the messaging hasn't been um, right. So for an example, some people were finding it difficult to actually get to see a GP for their normal health care because they were asked, have you got a cough? Yeah, right. I've got a cough because I have asthma or I have an allergic, allergic cough. So that sort of inability to explain what, cough we mean and the ability to understand, well, are they talking about a COVID cough, a, you know, a virus cough or a asthmatic cough? Or a, So if people don't actually understand what the messaging there's there, um, is being presented, they're not going to be able to, um, you know, take on board what we really want people to do to prevent this infection
0: becoming widespread. One of the other myths, and we mentioned the myth that you know the majority of um, you know Aboriginal people live in in rural or remote communities, and they actually are. Uh, we are a very urbanised uh, community. Another yeah. another myth too is that every Aboriginal person only goes to Aboriginal health services. That of course is not the case, and there's actually. Another perhaps prohibiting factor in urban communities like here in Melbourne is a scepticism around actually attending mainstream health services, which may be, uh, especially now that we're in a hard lockdown, the only service that you're actually able to get access to.
2: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's a really important um, point to make and point to address. Um, To beat this virus, we need an effective system Wide approach to the virus. And that means that an Aboriginal person should feel safe and secure to actually go to a main, uh, mainstream, a word, but a non Aboriginal community controlled yeah. general practice or a non Aboriginal community controlled community health centre to see a nurse. All of those should actually be developed in a way that, is, that a person feels safe, that they're able to enter that. And at the moment, I, I, that's not the case. So that's why we need, you know, sort of this sort of system-wide approach. So that uh, an Abor- so, that, so my um, my father lives in a our uh, father lives in a town two and a half hours south of here. Mm-hmm. There's no Aboriginal medical service near him, so he has to uh, um, go to the local sort of GP practice. That practice should be safe for him. Also, I should be able to go to my GP practice and know that it's sort of culturally safe and secure.
0: What do governments need to do?
2: Um, governments need to um, to acknowledge the, the differences that um, we uh, all uh, are facing. Um, governments, and by governments I mean federal, um, uh, you know, all of our state and territory, but also our um, local governments need to actually be addressing um, sort of addressing and making Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people feel safe and secure in the services that they all provide. I think that uh, governments need to take a leadership role. They need to continually work with um, Aboriginal community control and Aboriginal community um, organisations. I think that what's going to what the strength of the response has been so far that we can continue on is to maintain that relationship, particularly with the new release of the new closing the gap target. We need to maintain this incredibly strong, um, sort of partnership, partnered approach that has um been developed during this pandemic. We need to maintain that, you know, continuing on.
0: I wanted to, yeah, last question before I let you let you go, Daniel. Um, what, what do you think of the of the new closing the gap agreement?
2: um I haven't digested it properly yet um I there's
0: a lot to digest that
2: the, yeah, I've you know we've essentially doubled doubled in a bit the um I think it's gone from eight to 16.
0: yep um
2: 16, yep. I think you know we need to it, it's great that it's now a a all whole of government um, approach and that it will be led by you know, for the for the Aboriginal organizations and Aboriginal people, I think there needs to be some really good thinking around can we measure these targets? Can we um action uh, activity to ensure that we're meeting these targets? And I think um, I'm not going to say we need more money because um, I don't think sometimes you need a lot more money thrown at um, programs, I think it's an opportunity to look at the way that we're doing things and be more um, uh, aggressively efficient. Um, but I think we can do that if it's a really strong Indigenous-led approach and a really good partner approach towards um, achieving the target.
0: Daniel, thank you so much for the time. For your time, the, the the article is entitled "Urban Aboriginal People Face Unique Challenges in the Fight Against Coronavirus." It's available on the in the conversation online. If you just do a Google search for the conversation, you'll find it. There's a whole range of articles in there relating to Aboriginal health, but also to um, the new agreement. Um, enjoy sunny, happy, COVID-free Perth, Daniel.
2: Yeah, there's a line there about Clive Palmer, but I'll just say thank you (laughs) and thanks for letting me talk. (laughs) Goodbye. Thanks, Daniel.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.